Welcome to Media Tribe, the podcast that's on a mission to restore faith in journalism. I'm Shona Kinnair, an award-winning journalist with over 10 years of experience working for some of the biggest news outlets in the industry. Every week, I'm going to introduce you to some of the world's most respected journalists, filmmakers and media executives, and you're going to hear the story behind the storyteller. You'll get a sense of the integrity and hard graft that's involved in journalism, and hopefully you'll go away feeling that this craft is worth valuing. It was a journalist who called us sobbing, just, you know, sobbing on the phone. I thought, who is this journalist? I didn't know her. And and she said, have you looked at Twitter? And I said, no. And so obviously I, I looked on Twitter and that's when I saw the horrible image of Jim, um, you know, that he, he had been beheaded. In August 2014, Diane Foley received a call that would change her life forever. A video of her son, James Foley, who'd been covering the war in Syria as a freelance journalist since early 2012, had just been posted on YouTube. James had been murdered by ISIS. This is Diane's story and her son James's legacy. Diane Foley, welcome to the Media Tribe. My pleasure. It's very lovely to kind of meet you in person, Diane. I followed your work at the Foundation for years. So thank you sincerely for coming on today. It's my pleasure, Shauna. Always happy to talk about Jim and our work at his foundation. So can you tell me about James as a journalist and his work and everything he did? Well, (laughs) Jim was the oldest of our five children. From the time he was a youngster, he was always curious, just interested in life and people, in primarily people, where they were from, what they thought, what they wanted to do. So he was a child who really had a lot of friends. It took him a while to find journalism. His In his undergraduate work, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He went to Marquette University, had to get away from all his younger siblings and uh, get a little bit of space. He majored in history and Spanish and didn't know what he wanted to do. was not a math major science person. He was an avid reader and he loved to history and uh, very interested in becoming fluent in Spanish. So, but one of the things that challenged him at Marquette is Marquette University bordered on a very poor neighborhood, very disadvantaged neighborhood. So the university encouraged students to go out and tutor in the in the neighborhood. And um, so Jim did that from the time he was a freshman. And I really think it was there in many ways that his eyes were open to the more vulnerable children, you know, whose parents were incarcerated. Um, there was poverty, there was crime. And from then on, Jim seemed to have uh, definitely an interest in telling the stories of other people. I think he was at first kind of shocked. He'd grown up in a middle-class part of rural New Hampshire um, and really hadn't been exposed to inner-city poverty. After his graduation from Marquette, he um, was thinking about the Peace Corps, Teach for America, 
chose Teach for America because he wanted to use his Spanish primarily. And they put him in an inner city school in Phoenix where he was exposed to a lot of youngsters with huge needs. Very diverse population, American Indian, some um, Black children, Hispanic, real mix, very challenging. They thought, who is this guy? You know, they were very hard on Jim, but they really were. Um, And I remember Jim finding it very challenging to teach these youngsters. But uh, he never thought he was good enough at teaching. He spent a good three to five years doing this and also began writing on his own, um, got his Master of Fine Arts in writing along the way but eventually found that he wanted to tell real stories about a lot of these vulnerable populations. And um, that's how he found his way back to Chicago, worked actually at the county jail for a while, teaching young felons English, helping them get their graduate degrees, but also became interested in populations in conflict zones because coincidentally, two of his, three of his younger siblings were all in the military. You know, it was interesting. And I think Jim really was was not um, was very pacifist type of person and and he really didn't understand why anyone would want to go in the military and was very interested in why soldiers chose to do that. But once he got in Iraq and Afghanistan, he was very interested in the population, the people who lived in those countries who were living day to day amid the conflict. So that's where he started in his conflict journalism, really, by an embed with the Indiana National Guard, and then in um, Iraq, then with um, the 104th first airborne in Afghanistan. So that's where it began. So after he embedded with the army, did he go directly to Libya from there? So 2011, Arab springtime, freelancers were flooding in. You and I both know that. So tell me about his time in Libya, Diane. Well, I think uh, Jim enjoyed his embed time. He learned a lot, which he needed to do, because really the journalism was his second career. It was after years of teaching, really, and writing, as I said. So he had things to learn. And so he really appreciated the embeds, but they were also restrictive as far as what they could cover, where they could go and all. Protective, but restrictive. And I think certainly when the Arab Spring started in the Middle East, he, like many young freelancers, very much wanted to cover that history that was was taking place. And as you know, that was a time when because of the increased risk of the conflict zone, many staffers were moving out. So there were there was a need for people to cover stories in that area. So he was one of the first to go to Benghazi in early 2011, was, was really enjoying being there. Uh, the, as you said, Shauna, there were many, many freelancers there. And he loved it and um, was very much a part of it and found it fascinating and very fascinating. Well, it it was a very, very dangerous time, Diane, as you know. And James, of course, was captured by Gaddafi forces in 2011. Can, Can you talk to us about that? I believe he was in captivity for 44 days, which must have been hell for you and your family. It was a shock. I mean, I think 
Well, I know. Uh, my background is as a nurse, as a nurse and mother, nurse nurse practitioner and mother. I had no clue how dangerous the work of a freelancer was. Totally clueless about it, and I just really was totally unaware. So when Jim um, was captured, luckily it was witnessed by a, a New York Times reporter, so we knew who had who had taken him and essentially where he was, but. Never Nevertheless, I was in shock. I just, we were totally, this was a very bizarre, horrible, horrible situation for us. And it was really our second oldest son, Michael, who took the lead. And he immediately started working with one of his uh, global posts, was an online media company out of Boston, Massachusetts. And they were very helpful initially trying to help um, us find Jim and our son Michael was very involved working with the State Department and such. Jim had three brothers. Two of the brothers were one was Army, one was Air Force. His sister was Navy, but Michael was our businessman. So Michael, um, very close to Jim though. And so he just took the lead. John and I were just in shock. Our job was to pray, and but Michael took the lead. Really, it was miraculous that he got out of Libya through the help of David Bradley um, out of the Atlantic, who, coincidentally, one of his freelancers had been captured with Jim. Claire Gillis had been captured with Jim and Manu Rebo in Libya. And so David wanted them to help them all get out. And he found a contact into the Gaddafi regime, and she was able to Amazing. talk them into letting them out. It was a miracle. It was a miracle. And, and yeah, it was. So, so Diane, J- James, as far as I understand, then came back to do office work, let's say, at Global Post in Boston, and pr- it probably didn't sit very well with him sitting at a desk and, and trying to be a journalist at the desk. It, it sounds like it just didn't suit who he was. And so then when did he go back or go into Syria for the first time? Well, he worked as an editor for Global Post all summer, and it didn't suit him particularly well. And I don't think I realized, nor did many of us, that Jim did have some PTSD from his imprisonment. And he was restless. He went back to Libya, actually, with Human Rights Watch in the fall of 2011 after he had come home, then was home for the holidays, but he actually went back into the field on his own early 2012. He he began his work in Syria. And what do you think, you know, after, or you know, having experienced that in Libya, kind of what, what do you feel, Diane, drove him to go to a place like Syria, which was clearly exceptionally dangerous at the time as well? Jimmy had found something. He tells me, Mom, I found my passion. I mean, Jim really felt this was something he could and needed to do. He, he just, it just, he loved the excitement, the interest, the, but he loved bearing witness to history, essentially. And he was taken by the plight of, of the civilians in the middle of it all and really wanted to tell this story. So he really felt incredibly committed to it. And whenever I would bring up the fact that, you know, that he could easily return to teaching or whatever, it was something he he wanted to do. 
he was committed to. He had promises to keep, he would say, um, because throughout 2012, he came back to the United States at least twice, um, once in um, the spring of 2012 and again in October of 2012 before he was kidnapped for the final time. His primary work in Syria was in northern Syria, and he had some good colleagues. And however, his last trip when he was home in October, he knew it was getting more dangerous. He really did. But he says, no worries, mom, I'll be home for Christmas. He was very intentional about safety. He had taken several um, hostile environment and first aid courses. He'd taken the risk training. He had, you know, at that time, technologically, we weren't where we are today, you know, but he still had some kind of a way that we were supposed to be able to find him in country. And he was really trying to be as safe as he could as a freelancer. Obviously, Diane, James, above anybody else, knew the risks. And, you know, he was taking all of these precautions. As you say, he did his hostile environment training. I'm sure he was carrying a sat phone. People were monitoring where he was and he was checking in all the things that we're taught to do before we go out into the field. So do you want to talk to us, Diane, about, you know, it's around Thanksgiving again in 2012 when when James was in northern Syria and, and what happened? Well, yes. One of the things Jim was wonderful about is he really kept in touch. Um, whenever it was a holiday or a birthday or anything like that, he always called. So it was very strange that Thanksgiving of 2012 when we did not hear from him on Thanksgiving Day. That was odd. And it bothered me, but I didn't think much of it until the next morning when we received a phone call from two of his colleagues who said that Jim had been kidnapped. It was two of his freelance friends who um, were supposed to meet him the day before, and he did not show. And the driver told them that he and a, a colleague of his had been kidnapped just a few miles from the border. So very, he, they were on their way home from their trip essentially. So they had been kidnapped and like we couldn't believe it. But we were obviously horribly concerned. It was awful. It was awful. But we were hopeful the last time we'd been able to get him back. And um, But this was different. Nobody witnessed the kidnapping except this driver who didn't recognize the captors. We had no idea who had kidnapped him or where um, he was, or if he was alive, we had no idea. So it was right from the beginning, it was very different. And what goes through your mind, Diane, as a mum for the second time, you know, history repeating itself when, when you get that call? I was incredulous, to be honest, um, that it was happening again. It just brought me to my knees. Um, you know, I'm a person of prayer. And so I just started really praying. And um, it was just before Christmas. FBI told us not to tell anyone. So we did not. We just told closest friends and family. But no one knew where he was. He had disappeared. And that was very concerning because we had no idea. And even the Global Post had, at this point, had a security team that they um, engaged to help find Jim. And they had no idea. They couldn't, there were so many rumors about where he had gone, but everyone had different opinions. So we were frantic. So by the new year, 
I um, really felt the need to go public because I knew Jim had a lot of journalist friends in the Middle East. Um, as I said, Jim was very friendly and he had met so many people in the short time he'd been there. And so we went public in hopes of somebody knowing where he was. And we had a publicity campaign, essentially, the the um, winter, early spring of 2013, um, just begging for help. And were, were you in touch? Um, I'm sure you were, but with the, the actual American government and were they helpful, Diane? Well, yes, but it was different. Last time he had been kidnapped by a, the Libyan government, essentially. So the State Department was involved. This time was very different because we had no idea who was, had taken him. So FBI was involved. And the initial FBI agent who came to us was just um, frightening because he had never been to the Middle East. He had did not speak Arabic and um, suggested we talk to President Assad to see if he could help us find him. So it was obvious to us that he had no idea about what was happening on the ground in Syria. No idea. Wow. And it took him about three weeks to even get there. So right there, we were, oh, you know, we just thought they don't know what they're doing. You know, it was very daunting. So yes, FBI was engaged, but we had this agent for the first six months who um, just got information from us, literally. What was most helpful was the security team who was trying very hard to get information. But by the summer of 2013, we were really concerned. And that's when our friend David Bradley from Washington offered help again. Um, he'd never met Jim, but he's just a caring man. And um, so he started to help us with his research team. And by that fall, we had two sightings of Jim, a Belgian um, young man who had been briefly with ISIS. Um, his father called us to tell us that Jim was alive in northern Syria, and then another um, Syrian um, gentleman also. And then that November, a full year later, we received proof of life from it, from his captor. And at that point, you definitely knew it was ISIS who had captured your son. No, we didn't. We they did not identify themselves. We up until that point, the security team was convinced that Jim had been taken to Damascus and was um, had been captured by President Assad. But David Bradley and I never felt that. We kind of felt that wasn't that. I don't know why we weren't convinced. And it turns out he instead had been um, captured by an Al-Qaeda affiliate and then swapped around and eventually got with these jihadists who were part of ISIS. But their emails did not identify themselves as such at all. And that's, ex I mean, that was happening. Journalists who were kidnapped were kidnapped by militia groups and then passed along to different groups, isn't that? And then and then a lot of them ended up with ISIS, as we know. So so that was the end of 2013. Then what happened, Diane? Well, we were filled with hope in that. I mean, it was awful to, you know, it was, it was frightening, but hopeful in an odd sense. Jim was alive, you know, and um, we knew they had him. And so that's when I started to work really hard with the, with the federal government and really push them. And I started taking 
multiple trips to Washington, trying to talk to the State Department, the FBI. I had no idea who to speak with. Like I say, I was a nurse from New Hampshire, so I knew nothing about Washington. And um, But I really, I was there um, every month, sometimes several times a month. And eventually I had to quit my job that spring because it was, we were getting more and more frantic. We, we knew where Jim was. And the other thing that was, was hopeful in a way was that beginning in February, hostages started to come, in, come out from that group. It began with the Spanish hostages. And we were so encouraged because they told us Jim was alive and well and doing well, strong and resilient. And then the French came out and we were just getting hopeful. And we assumed that our government was was in there fighting for us. Um, and I was told every time I talked to our government that Jim was their highest priority. And I guess that's the thing that, you know, made me trust our government, that our government, Jim was the highest priority. So, well, they must be working on um, him coming out. It's it's it's. I mean, at this point, Diane, it's maybe worth pointing out to our audience that in other international governments do pay ransom money in hostage negotiation situations, whereas the US do not. Isn't that correct? Exactly. It's so true, um, Shauna. I think that is. I wish I'd been told that. Even I was very uneducated about our hostage policy, and nobody ever ever told me the reason why FBI could never directly talk to the terrorists. They, we had to do all the negotiating. So our skilled FBI agents, um, none of our people were involved with captors during that month of, quote, negotiation. It was all on us as a family. And even after that, we kept talking to, we had a better FBI agent starting that fall, much more in touch and aware, but he still used us for information and really was not allowed to give us any. So we just never knew. We, we just didn't realize that our government's hands were tied. We should have, but we didn't. So it was really not till like June of, well, April of 2014, David Bradley helped us figure out that Jim was not alone, that he had been with all these other uh, up to 18 Western hostages, and that three others were American. Mm. And I didn't know that either. Um, So, but then by June, we really thought, Everyone else is out, but ours aren't, you know? And so that's when I too late here it was 18 months later but that's when we started getting pledges for ransom because we thought well gee maybe we need to try to raise some monies just ourselves our government obviously cannot and will not so we raised about a million dollars in pledges and but we couldn't get back the captors wouldn't answer us when we sent them email what were they demanding as the ransom money they um they they only were responsive for about one month, end of November to end of December of 2013. And at that time, they asked for 100 million euro or uh, multiple um, prisoners that they wanted released. And of course, as a family, we could do neither. 
Um, and we would just told uh, the FBI suggested we just tell the truth. That's all we could do that, that we could not do that. So that's why too late, I realized that, wow, we have got to do something ourselves. Our government's not acting on this. So we were able to raise the money, but then the captors wouldn't get back to us. I was actually in France, in Paris in July when my husband called me and told me that, Diane, we received a message from the captors. And I was, you know, elated because I thought we could tell them we have this ransom and try to negotiate. But really what that was, was just an email to tell us that um, if our government didn't stop bombing to protect the Yazidi population, um, Jim was going to be killed. He was going to be the first one killed. And that's what happened on August 19th. Um, and I mean, I don't even how, what on earth uh, do you do as a family then? You know, what do you do? You're, I mean, you're completely helpless. I'm sure at that point, Diane, you'd lost hope. Well, I was angry, Shauna. I guess I was angry that our government had lied to me, had told me Jim was a high priority when truthfully he was not. And truthfully, our government's hands were tied because of our hostage policy. But no one said that to me in a clear way. They may have tried to, but I never got the message. We never got the message that it was really on us to get him out. We never heard that. We heard that they were going to help. I was angry. And I felt as a, an American that our government could do better. Darn it. This was wrong. They, you know, our government didn't realize what an awesome person Jim was. And, and I was angry, Shauna. And I, I really was. And I was so disappointed that I, and mad at myself for trusting our government and for them just lying. I, I was shocked. Um, but very angry. I'm sure. And, and Diane, I mean, the toughest question of all, can you tell our audience what happened in August of 2014 and talk about Jim's fate? Well, it, you know, um, it was actually a beautiful August morning. And actually, some FBI agents had come to our house, some FBI agents we knew from Boston. And oddly, here it was. Um, 20 months after Jim was captured, they came to get DNA samples of my husband and I. I thought, okay. You know, they didn't seem to know anything or were good at not telling us. FBI agents are very good at not telling people anything. Um, but these guys were del delightful, and I don't really think they knew anything. But nevertheless, they showed up that morning um, to get DNA samples. We said, great, thank you. Um, and it was later, late morning that uh, it was a journalist who called us sobbing, just, you know, sobbing on the phone. I thought, who is this journalist? I didn't know her. And, and she said, have you looked at Twitter? And I said, no, you know, and she said, oh, my God, she was just crying. She couldn't stop crying. And so obviously I, I looked on Twitter and that's when I saw the horrible image of Jim um, with his head on his back, you know, that he, his, he had been beheaded. Um, and I just, I just didn't know what to think. And I, at first I, 
it looked like Jim, I had to admit. And I thought, oh, I don't know. So I reached out to our oldest son, Michael, our FBI agent right away, our security team. Um, but FBI never got back to us. Nobody got back to us. I think we were just all like, oh, my God. Nobody seemed to expect this statewide, state on state side. FBI, nobody, nobody. Everyone was like, oh, my God. I, I just think we were so naive as a government. You know, President Obama had called ISIS the JV team. I just think the fact that we didn't try to find and help Jim or Stephen Sotloff or Peter Kasich or Kayla Mueller made that we meant that we knew nothing about the captors. We hadn't allowed our FBI agents to negotiate. Therefore, they knew nothing about the captors, knew nothing about what they wanted. We were clueless, even FBI. We did not find out that um, that this image on Twitter was what FBI considered real until that night when um, President Obama went on national TV to announce that Jim had been killed. My God. So had, had, had Obama called you? I know he called, so he didn't. Well. No, no, no. Later. That's very disappointing, Diane. A few days later, when he had a moment between his golf games, he called us. But he did not call that day. Nobody from FBI called us that day. But we, 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 Things have improved since then. Well, that because of you, Diane, we should add. And, um, you know, I, I know, Diane, that you set up um, the James Foley Foundation three weeks after he was assassinated by ISIS. How, as a mum, did you even have the strength to go there? I was angry. And I really felt that we had to do better as a country. I, I just thought this was unacceptable. This is unacceptable to for our government to ignore the fate of two talented journalists and two compassionate aid workers to totally lie to us and abandon them to me was unacceptable. And so I just prayed for strength and Jim's friends. Jim had so many people who loved him. People came out of the woodwork to help us do the legal work quickly to make it a nonprofit and wonderful people. Um, our family, friends, um, Jim's tremendous colleagues. And we all decided it had to be that we had to stand up for justice and we had to advocate for innocent Americans who were taken hostage. I, I was just incredulous about that. And I also felt that the fate of um, freelancers was unduly risky, that freelancers needed more protection, needed security backup. They needed uh, more support to do the work that they were um, being called to do. So that's how we came up with that double um, mission to advocate to free American hostages and to protect journalists. And, and I mean, you have done significant work, Diane, in the last few years, the hostage recovery fusion, um, which you've kind of pushed to set up. Uh, President Obama, uh, after a lot of pressure, it took the death of these four Americans. Luke Summers was also killed in captivity that year and Warren Weinstein. It took the death of those six Americans to wake our government up. 
But their legacy is that President Obama did order a all review of the U.S. hostage policy and ordered a um, re- total restructuring of how we go about it. It was called PPD 30. So June 2015, he ordered this total restructuring, which started the host- the hostage recovery fusion cell. It uh, elected uh, or created the office for the special envoy for hostage affairs and the hostage recovery group at the White House. So and those are all filled at present. Um, we have a lot of support from this current administration. So we, we have uh, that in place. And um, we, the Foley Foundation, um, does research also now. Uh, we do our own qualitative review for the last two years. We interview hostage families and returned hostages to see how well our government is, in fact, doing and helping bring Americans home and supporting the families. That is absolutely fantastic. I want to just point out one thing, Diane, picking up on your pre- a previous point, just for our audience listening in. Um, when you say freelancer, you're talking about contract workers, essentially. Um, so most of us are freelancers freelancers, especially people who do foreign reporting and and producing. And I would say we get paid maybe you know, $300 a day for our work. So nobody is in this for the money. Just so anybody listening in who thinks it's all a very glamorous affair, you know, dipping into war zones. People do this, as you say, as as James did, to bear witness and to tell the truth. And I think the reason, I mean, a huge reason why I set up this podcast was to showcase why journalism is important, the integrity that's involved, and why the audience really, you know, should have faith in us and in journalism. And, you know, if, if anybody can epitomize that it is James Foley and the work he did and his legacy and and we certainly have you to thank for that as well Diane well one great thing that happened after Stephen Sotloff and Jim's murder was that journalists were very upset a lot of leaders stepped up and in 2015 early 2015 Um, Many of those journalists came together first in Washington, D.C., and then at Columbia University in New York. And within the next few months, I was invited to, and we helped found an international coalition called a Culture of Safety Alliance. And that was kind of a historic coming together of media companies, freelancers, and press freedom nonprofits. Because too often we found that because of turf battles or competition within the media, that the the freelancer was uh, being abused, as you say. Often paid a pittance for an article or a podcast or a a photograph that they were risking their lives for no reimbursement, essentially. So that alliance is strong today, and I'm part of their board. And we continue to work hard to make sure freelancers have access to the hostile environment and first aid training, which is very expensive for a freelancer to take a week off, fly to these trainings and participate. So we, we've really tried to make that more accessible. We've tried to get more security back up for freelancers, medical insurance, and editor training. So people in newsrooms know 
more reasonably what is reasonable with their freelancers. And so they feel more um, of an obligation to protect their freelancers. So we've made some progress, I feel. You absolutely have. And I think it's all about the duty of care of those editors, even if people are not full-time staffers, there is a duty of care to freelancers who are putting their necks on the line to send back pictures and videos and what have you. So good for you, Diane. Do you feel like the situation for journalists has improved since 2014, both on foreign soil and here in the US? That's a very good question. Has improved. It depends. Um, We have never needed Um, investigative journalists more than now. Um, This is a time when we sorely need the truth to come through. Unfortunately, partly because of television 24, a cycle, part of a lot of opinion pieces, a lot of people, there is a lot of misinformation, disinformation out there. And that has really taken its toll on journalists and on the the trust of journalism and trust of journalists. And that is so unfortunate because I think that's made it much less safe for journalists. I think journalists are more at risk now domestically as well as in um, foreign lands. I, I think they're at terrible risk these days and they risk their lives to get people the truth. And that is somehow being lost in the conversation and very concerning for me because, and that's why we're passionate about preventative safety training, that we feel that anyone who aspires to be a journalist of any sort, domestically, internationally, or some sort of an international affairs person needs to have a strong background in safety digital security, um, risk assessment, just understanding the background of where they're going, where they're, where they're, what um, population they're covering. We just uh, are very passionate about that. And that's why the Foley Foundation has, um, we've developed uh, undergraduate and graduate curriculum for safety. Fantastic. Well, anybody listening in should go and follow your work. Um, you guys are great on Facebook. Um, so going forward, Diane, to kind of wrap up on a positive note, what can both the public do in order to advocate for journalists? Um, and what can media bosses do going forward in terms of freedom of press and journalism safety? Well, I really feel our Alliance for Culture of Safety, there definitely needs to be more work together with media companies and press freedom groups working together with journalists, both freelance and staff, that we need to band together to promote journalist safety and to promote the truth. So that people, population, average citizen can recognize that people need to know the facts. Democracy is based on the truth. So if we don't have journalists, we're going to lose the ability to know how to choose our leaders. It is incredibly um, foundational. Journalism, in many ways, is a cornerstone of our democracy. I just feel that us working together is essential. 
I also feel that um, young universities and uh, education needs to prepare youngsters to better understand how to get the truth, that they may not be reading the truth on social media. They may be reading someone's opinion, that they may not, they need to know where to go to get the facts. How do they really know what's going on? So some of that's education. And that some of that is the need to know that the Foley Foundation is very, very much a part of. We Jim aspired to be a man of moral courage. On his trip back from Libya, he said that to be a journalist, he felt a journalist had to have moral courage, to be willing to risk their own life, their own reputation, to make sure the truth got out. And we feel at the Foley Foundation that that's true in government and all walks of life, that we need to have the courage to do the right thing. Diane Foley, thank you so, so much for for coming on the podcast, but for also being so candid and brave and so dignified in your work. Thank you sincerely. Well, it's my pleasure, Shauna. And I invite anyone to go to a Foley, jamesfoleyfoundation.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you. If you like what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, that's very good news because I'm going to be dropping new shows every week and every month on my new Media Tribe Spotlight series. Also, if you haven't already, make sure to take a listen to previous shows with some legendary folk in the industry. And as ever, please, please, please do leave me a rating and review as it really does help other people find this podcast. Finally, if you do have any guest suggestions, drop me a note on Twitter. I'm at Shauna with the GH or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram. And again, that's with the GH. Right, that's it. See you soon. This episode was edited by Ryan Ferguson. <laughs>